0: It takes the earth 365 and a third days to revolve around the sun. We call that unit of time a year. And by that unit of time, we measure life and we measure life span. And if you are an average American, you will have approximately 70 to 72 of those units before you die. During that time, you will undergo many, many changes, and that is why a new year is so important to so many of us. In our society, and actually in every society, we attach a certain amount of significance to the beginning of that unit of time. We call it a new year, and people have a great celebration over it. If you were around last night at midnight and you were awake, you heard the celebration that people had outside with fireworks and woohoo and all the other stuff going on. We attach a special significance to the beginning of that unit because every new year represents a clean slate to people, a chance to start over, that somehow, no matter what our past has been, the future is spotless. And so with a new year, for most people, comes a new hope. We hope that the new year will be better than the old year. Even if we've had a great year, we are hoping for a better new one. We're hoping that some of our old habits that we've been trying to battle against will be dropped. We hope that new habits will be firmly established, good godly habits. So it's a time where we look back, but we look ahead with hope. That's what we call the New Year. I want to warn you against what is called a New Year's resolution. While they are good to have, sometimes you can walk away from a New Year's resolution feeling quite empty. Because in the energy of our flesh, we make a decision, we resolve to do something. And although our flesh is pretty powerful... And we're going to determine to lose 10 pounds. We've eaten during the holidays. Now it's the New Year's. I'm going to lose 10 pounds in the first few months. Or this semester I'm going to get straight A's. And we set our hopes high and we make those resolutions. We can walk away feeling like a failure. Because a lot of times those resolutions, though they are well-meaning, are trying to be carried out by the energy of the flesh that we don't have. And that's the warning. On the other hand, it is important and necessary to make right resolutions, to make godly choices, God-breathed, spirit-led resolutions. The Bible calls that vision. We're going to talk about that this morning as we go on. And that's why I've had you turn to Nehemiah 2, because Nehemiah was a man of purpose and a man of vision. He had a vision to rebuild a city that was destroyed, Jerusalem. In chapter 1 he was in the captivity and he had heard that although the Jews had returned back to Jerusalem the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire and it touched his heart and he had a vision to go back and see those walls rebuilt all over again Things looked very bleak in chapter 1 chapter 2 there's a change Nehemiah puts on his working clothes and he becomes a engineer a building engineer And I want you to look at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem And we will no longer be in disgrace or reproach. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, the official Gisham the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This morning, I want to look at this small section in three phases. And we're going to speak about vision. How Nehemiah got the vision and then how he shared the vision, and then how these people started to build the vision. You notice a phrase in verse 12. Look at it again. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone, and here's the phrase, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. God put something within the heart of Nehemiah. He saw something that needed to be done, but the work was initiated by God. God put something in his heart. Before any work could be done on Jerusalem itself, God first did a work in the heart of Nehemiah. And folks, there is no significant work ever done in the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of God That doesn't begin this way. Every significant work of God begins with God putting something within the heart of one or more of his servants. Now, we call that vision. The Bible talks about vision. The world uses different terms. The world speaks about goals, dreams, projects. It speaks about positive thinking. Having a dream and running after your dream and setting your goals high. Get a target and run after it. And while those things are okay and they do work, most of the time they are selfish. I have a goal for me, for my family, this much money a year, these many cars in my driveway. I want to be this stable by the time I'm 45. Those are goals that we set. That is different from vision. Vision means when God puts something in the heart of a person to further his plan or his kingdom, that's vision. Nehemiah had vision to rebuild a work of God, the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down. I looked up vision in Webster's Dictionary this week just to find out what Webster said. It described vision and a visionary. And it said a visionary is someone that has foresight or insight. Someone who sees what nobody else sees. Someone who has great dreams, but it's more than just goals. It's someone who can see something that isn't there. It was said of Michelangelo, the great sculptor and the great painter, that he saw a piece of marble one day and he looked at it and he wanted to buy it. And the owner of the piece of marble said, "Ah, this marble is valueless, it's worth nothing. And Michelangelo said, it's valuable to me. Because, you see, there is an angel imprisoned within it, and I must set it free. He saw something that the owner didn't see. When it comes to the Scripture, the Bible says that without a vision, the people perish. Without a vision, the people perish. When a Christian does not have vision, that's called aimlessness. And that is the reason that years go by, and every new year, there's a great number of God's people who feel very empty. Because that cycle of time has elapsed. And they've had no concrete vision, direction, or plan for their lives where they've heard from God. They're just sort of aimless. It's sort of, well, whatever happens. And of course, the favorite catchphrase is, well, whatever God wants. But many times, because there is that aimlessness, aimlessness, lack of vision, lack of plan, it leaves people feeling very empty. I believe that one of the greatest needs for all of us this year is, first of all, for our hearts to hear from God. For God to put a plan, a vision in our hearts for our families, our ministries, Our lives, not that God will map out everything you're going to be doing this year, next year, the year after, but a vision insight into something God wants to have done and puts it in your heart so that you have that vision and you know what you're aiming towards so that at the end of the year, you don't feel empty and aimless. We need God to speak to our hearts like the two people on the road to Emmaus. Remember what it says when Jesus was walking with those two men after the crucifixion? And Jesus incognito started revealing the scriptures of the Old Testament to those two men. And they said afterwards when they recognized it was Jesus, Did not our hearts burn within us? As he opened up the scriptures along the way and he spoke to us. The great need this year is for good old scriptural heartburn. Where God burns a vision within our hearts. Speaks to us a plan. Where we come before God and we say, Okay, look God, it's the new year. There's 365 and a third days until the next one. I don't want any of them wasted. What is it, Lord, that I can do for your kingdom? To further your work? What plan would you speak for me and my family? That I might go out and be involved in. That's vision. We need that. And again, there is never... A significant work of God done without it. There's a couple of ingredients that I'd like you to look at that constitute this guy getting his vision. First of all, there was evaluation. And that's important. Look at verse 11. It says, I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. Now, if we would back up and look at the history of this guy, he was in a faraway country, way over in Persia. And he heard. He hadn't seen, he just heard from a messenger who had been in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was in shambles. God's people had gone back to rebuild, but nothing happened. They hadn't done it. The walls were still broken down. The gates were still burned with fire. Nehemiah heard about it. He wept and he prayed. And he got the king's permission to come and help be one of the principal rebuilders of the city. He heard about it. Now, if you go on with me, he evaluates it. It says that I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me or horses except the one that I was riding on. And by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well, the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. If you were to look at it on a map, he went down to the southern part of the city, backed out toward the west Went through the gate. As he was going through the rubble, he got to the king's pool and it was so constricted. The walls had fallen down and there was rubble all around. He couldn't even get through on the horse. He had to do it by foot. I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. If you have noticed this phrase as we went through it, these verses, he uses this word examining twice. Let me tell you what it means. It means it's a medical term of probing an open wound. Where if there was a soldier who was wounded, they would take an instrument and probe through it, opening it up to examine the damage. He was probing through the damage to get an insightful view of what needed to be done. He was evaluating the condition. He didn't just go to Jerusalem and say, okay, I'm here. Let's just go at it. For three days, he didn't do anything but examine the walls. He said nothing. He came up with no architectural design. He just looked. He evaluated the condition. And this is always the first step in rebuilding. It's always the first step in getting a vision for what God wants us to do. Evaluate the condition. Look at our lives and see what is destroyed. What do we need to go for? This last week, for Christmas, after second service, I flew to California. I was with my parents and Lenya's parents. And Lenya's parents are in the midst of rebuilding their home because of earthquake damage. That seems to be part and parcel of living in Southern California. They had an earthquake that just tore the fireplaces away from the wall and destroyed their yard. And they are going through months of rebuilding but they just didn't get out there with a hammer and some bricks and some cement and say, okay, let's slap it together. It took about a month of just assessing the damage and estimating the cost. I would like all of us today, in looking ahead at the new year, to picture our lives as if we are rebuilding walls that perhaps have been broken down. And this is where many Christians fail. They approach a project or a new year with all sorts of gusto and zeal. All right, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to make resolutions. This new year is going to be better than the last. I'm going to do this, we're going to do that. Hallelujah. But they have not stopped to consider the damage. What's it going to cost? How do I plan this out before the Lord and plot based on the damage where I need to go from here? Nehemiah said nothing, but he only evaluated. Find out, folks, in your life, as I find out in my life, just exactly what walls are broken down. Perhaps through neglect, Some of your relationships with God, with spouse, with friends, are broken. Walls corrode slowly. First of all, a little stone or piece of mortar falls out. And then that wall begins to crack. And then it breaks. And then a hole develops within it. And then weeds of carnality start growing in it. And by and by, the enemy starts getting his foothold Gaining access to our lives. You may be known as a good Christian. You may be known in this church as having a high reputation and a high standing and yet you know in your own heart if those walls of spiritual life that are sort of a protection and a hedge for you are broken down. You've let it go slowly. A little crack has developed and you thought, oh, not a big deal. God understands we all have flaws. You've never attended to it. It starts cracking wider and wider. That hole develops. And it is easy for a lot of us to rationalize the cracks in our own walls and those points of access, the gates that are burned with fire. We've allowed compromise. We've allowed perhaps even immorality lack of devotion to God, to just creep in unattended. I have noticed something that is quite frightening to me over the last few years, and that is many of the people in our own Christian family take God lightly. They don't reassess their lives frequently. They don't stop and evaluate the walls and the gates. They don't spend time looking at the damage. They take God very lightly. They start slipping and they think, well, I'm not so bad. I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Certainly God understands. Pretty soon, that kind of an attitude takes its toll. And walls start crumbling. The defenses are down. And it happens all the time, especially in relationships. Well, this is the time to reevaluate, to look at the damage. And then to go on. I want you to look at something else, too. Look at verse 12. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone. I want you to just examine that. I had not told anyone what God put in my heart to do. That seems sort of weird. The guy has a vision. Why didn't he tell it? Look down at verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who were doing the work. Now, there's a little secret here. Nehemiah concealed the vision and later on he revealed the vision. But first of all, he concealed it. He kept it secret. He didn't tell anyone. You know why? He wanted to make sure that what God put in his heart, it was indeed God who put it in his heart. He just didn't want to run around with a plan and just spit it out to everyone if that was a plan from his own flesh. There's an important scripture in James that says that we should never say, well, I'm going to go into that city and. Get gain and sell and buy and spend a year there. But we should always say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do it. Another beautiful scripture in Proverbs says that he who guards his lips, guards his life. Oh, that's a lesson we need to learn. I definitely need to learn that. He who guards his lips, guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin Nehemiah wanted to make sure that this thing in his heart was from God. He wasn't just going to spit out what he felt was there. He assessed the damage. He concealed it. He molded it over, and before God, he came up with a plan of action. He came up with a plan for the future, and once it was cemented in his heart, then he shared it. You see, carefully and prayerfully, Nehemiah considered what needed to be done, and this is the first step, evaluation before the Lord. I encourage, I admonish, I exhort every one of us this year to re our lives. Today, preferably, to spend some kind of a time saying, God, speak to my heart a vision for my life, my relationship with you, my family. Make sure it's from God. And then comes the next step, sharing the vision. Look down at verse 17. Then I said to them... You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. At the right time, Nehemiah shared it, not with everyone, a small group of people, a few quality folks. There's a list of them, rulers, the elders, the officials. He took with him in the examination a few men. He did not have a public convocation. He didn't say, let's have a state of the union message, and I'm just going to share it with everybody in Jerusalem. He shared his plan, first of all, with a small group of people, a few select people he shared. A principle that emerges here is the need to surround ourselves with quality people. Now, I'm not saying that you grade everybody and saying you're an A, you're a B, you're a C. I don't want to hang around you, but you're an A so you can hang around me. You're my style. But there is a need for every single Christian to have a network of Christian friends because more and more in the church is this damaging philosophy that says, just me and God. I don't need the church. I don't need kinships. I don't need close relationships. I've been burned before. So I'm not going to get close to anybody. All I need is me and God and me and God will hang out together. Me and God will go out in the woods and have church and me and God will lick the world. That is the damaging kind of isolationism that ruins churches. And you see, that's the mentality of our society, which has many casual contacts, but few friendships. That is what is bred by that kind of a philosophy and a mentality within the church. Many studies have been done. We've shared them with you time and time again, that human beings cannot function effectively without close links, deep bonds of continuous communication, meaningful relationships. In fact, a book that I have in my library, there's a chapter by Donald Joy. The chapter says, Who is Holding Your Trampoline? And he pictures life like a trampoline. You've got four sides, and you need four groups of people holding you up to keep your life in balance. The illustration he uses is going to an emergency room. You go to an emergency room. How many people need to be contacted? You've got a lot of people. Doctors, nurses, technicians, family. You need a lot of people surrounding you, and Donald Joy says that the average adult human being needs between 20 and 30 people holding up the trampling at all times. Some kind of contact and relationship to keep that person in balance. There is the need this year to communicate your vision and to share it with quality people. Surround yourself with people for accountability, for mutual encouragement, and to build one another up. Look at verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. I like that. Nehemiah just didn't come with a vision. Say, here's my vision. I've got it from God. It's the plan. You've got to do it. We've got to do it. He encourages them. He tells them what needs to be done. Then he says, you know what? God's been so gracious to me. He's been so good to me. He brought me from Persia all the way here. He opened up the king's heart. He gave me traveling mercies. He gave me money to come all this way. God has been good to me in the past. And they needed that encouragement, folks, because the job of rebuilding those walls was a formidable task. And it would be very easy for them to get discouraged. And so he shares A bit of encouragement. God's been good in the past and because of his track record, we're going to make it in the future. I want to point out something else in verse 17 before we move on. I want you to notice a few words. Now, this is especially to those of us who have the need to rebuild the walls of relationships. Perhaps you are having a real tough time with your wife, children, friends, and so on. Look at verse 17. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. You saw the words that I emphasized? We, us, we. He identified himself with the problem. Which to me is beautiful because Nehemiah wasn't even part of the problem. He was over there in Persia. He heard that the walls were broken down. He didn't do anything. He was serving God in another part of the world. Yet he comes to Jerusalem. The disgrace is upon the Jewish people, but he identifies himself with them. Now what would be their response if Nehemiah would have come up and said, You guys get to work. You've got problems. It's not my problem. I'll be in my office if you need me. But you're the guys that have brought this problem upon yourself. You're in reproach because of your own failure. So you get to work. If Nehemiah would have shared that, he would have squelched motivation. And there's a key if you're trying to rebuild relationships. Identify yourself with the problem. And this is again where many married couples have problems. They see a problem in communication with their husband or their wife. And we get into the if-only syndrome. Well, I know there's problems, but if only she'd... Well, I know what the Bible said, but if he'd only do this and do that. Honey, we need to go to counseling. You have a problem. (laughs) Identify yourself with a problem. Criticism and harshness squelches motivation. Identify yourself with the problem. It encourages motivation. Nehemiah did that. It's our problem. Let us rebuild. We've got to do something. And now he builds the vision. Um, He says, The good hand of God was upon me. The king had said to me. And then it says, They replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. And you think, Great, they're on their way. Nehemiah has a vision. He's opened up lines of communication. He's shared with the people and identified the problem. They're on their way. And yet, listen to verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. That is, they stammered incessantly against us. And they asked, or they said, what is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? This new year on which you and I are on the brink, I will guarantee you, you will have this kind of opposition, especially if today you are resolved to go away and get a vision from God for your family, for your life, for your ministry. You're determined to know that and to pass it on to a quality group of individuals around you for the sake of accountability and mutual encouragement. You're on your way. You're going to face opposition. Because you have an enemy and so do I. And any time you decide to make a commitment like that, you're a target. Satan hates the work of God and he hates those people who do the work of God. And when you wave the flag of commitment and rededication, you have stepped into an arena of which you become a target. And you must be willing to pay the price that is just the price of a committed Christian. On the other hand, If you are complacent about your walls, you're content to look at them every morning and see the bricks falling off and the gates burned with fire, nobody's perfect, not a big deal. You are no threat to the enemy. But if you step into the arena of aggressive Christianity, you're a target. Anytime you decide, I want to hear the voice of God, I want to serve God, all the demons in hell are not going to give you a standing ovation. They're going to be after your hide. Part and parcel of serving God. I've heard so many times Christians say, I can't believe it, man. I've had so much opposition. I've tried to serve God. I've come up with this plan. It seemed to be flow, but I've got all these problems. It's not flowing right. It must not be the will of God. I don't know. I think that might be one of the strongest indicators that you are in the will of God that you're getting opposition. Caution, however. I want to qualify that. Don't take everything this year that comes against you as spiritual warfare. A lot of us get in the habit of that. Things aren't going our way and we think, it's the devil. Opposition, spiritual warfare. I must be in God's will. Make sure that you're getting hassled from the right sources that it is the enemy who's trying to hinder you, not the Lord, because you might be going off half-cocked in the energy of the flesh and God's stopping you. And it's not flowing because it's not the will of God. But you make sure if you're doing the will of God, if you've got a vision from God and a plan for your future, and you're going out in the strength of God, that you're going to get opposition from the enemy. And I want you to look at the next verse how they responded to that. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Beautiful. We, His servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. That's perseverance. Satan would love nothing more than to take the wind out of our sails any time you get a plan from the Lord. I'm going to do it in the strength of God. Uh, The enemy's after you. And if he can get you bummed out and discouraged at the beginning, he's got you licked. He wants you to quit. But these folks says, God will give us success. That is perseverance. Now, there's a beautiful flow to building his vision. First of all, there's evaluation. And then there's the reconstruction. And then there's perseverance. Keeping at it. Christian, be encouraged about something. If you or your family have heard from God and you're going out in the strength of God to do the will of God, if the enemy opposes you or anybody opposes you, God takes it personally. God takes it personally because you're doing the will of God. When the early church was growing and spreading from Jerusalem, moving up into parts of Syria. It says that Saul of Tarsus was after the Christians to put them to death and put them in prison. Saul didn't believe in Jesus. He was persecuting the Christians. And yet Jesus knocked him flat on his back off of his horse and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting My people? You're persecuting Me. I take it personally, Saul, when you're after my people doing my will. So be encouraged this year when you are being opposed by the enemy. God will give us success. There is the necessity among God's people to have good old-fashioned perseverance. To say no matter what the obstacle, I know this is the will of God and I'm going to stick it out. Because as we said at the beginning, this year we have no idea what's going to transpire. Even if you get a vision from the Lord for your life, for your family, you really have no guarantee of what will happen. The only guarantee you have is that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Some of you might lose people to death. God might change your family. You might lose a job. And God might give you a better one or might move you on somewhere else. But if you've heard from the Lord and you have that support of His people around you, even when the enemy attacks, nothing's going to hold you back. I am not a person who's fond of many poems but I have found one, some of you have heard it before, that I am very fond of. It goes like this. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use? croaked number one. Tis fate no helps around. Goodbye, my friends, goodbye, sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise, the while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or so I've heard, he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked, then hopped out via butter. Butter. That little frog had perseverance. I've heard it said that a man with a vision who has no task is just a dreamer. A man who has a task but no vision is a drudge. But a man who has a vision and a task is on the brink of victory. Get away with the Lord and let His heart speak to your heart. Find out what God wants you to start being involved with for His kingdom. Make sure it's of God and then communicate that vision for the sake of encouragement and accountability to people around you to strengthen you or to see your blind spots. And then no matter what, just keep going for it. Have a vision. Have a task. And you've got victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are Your people. And we give You this year. We place it firmly in Your hands because we know that You're big enough to handle it. Lord, I pray that You'd take care of us this year. I pray, Lord, that You would plant a plan, a vision within our hearts. That our hearts would burn Because we're not aimless. We've heard from You. We know where we're going. Even if it's not a detailed one, Lord, just speak to us. Give us direction. Give us vision. I pray, Lord, that because of that our world will change. That it will not become a drudgery. A meaningless, aimless task. That it will become a wonderful salty, influencing life. I pray, Lord, that You will give us some time today, this week, to set aside to do just that, to hear from You. And surround us, Lord, with those people to whom we can be accountable and we can give and receive encouragement from. We look ahead and we know that the enemy's after us. But we've known that from the beginning. We're not discouraged because of it, Lord. We, along with Nehemiah, say, God, will give us success. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And as we leave the pew and go out into the battlefield, I pray that our hearts will still be burning in Jesus' name. Amen.